This morning is September 10th. It is 2006. Our message this morning is to be. You got me? To be. Now, what's that a quote from? How would you finish it? Shakespeare. Shakespeare's play what? Hamlet. Come on, we got some educated folks in here. Hamlet what? See, I got to look this up. Acts 3, scene 1. Who's speaking? Hamlet. <laughs> says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Now, I don't claim to be somebody who understands Shakespeare. I have truthfully suffered through every bit of it in school and didn't like it. But that is probably one of the more well-known quotes. Anybody have a time period for that? An idea what time period it comes from? Shakespeare was born April 23rd, 1564. He died on his birthday in 1616. And some 16 years before he died was the first time Hamlet was ever performed anywhere. And one of the more famous quotes of our time, at least in English literature, is to be or not to be. In looking at the quote this morning, I found out Golda Meir used it. Several American presidents have used it in their speeches. It is a very popular quote. And Shakespeare did not originate it. Are you all in 2 Peter 3? 2 Peter 3, we have a variant of this question. Look at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Saints, this is my question this morning for you. Since we know that this world is destined to perish, that it will be remade afresh, anew, that everything that you see around you is perishing in bondage to decay, what ought you to be? Hamlet asked the question, do I rage against the sea of troubles? Do I live in outrageous fortune and fame? The question for Christians, asked some 1,600 years before that, is what ought you to be? In Genesis 2 is where we'll begin our message today. Does that surprise you? Genesis 2. Peter asked, what ought you to be? How many of you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Oh my goodness, only Mandy believes that the Bible is the Word of God. I can hear the Kenshins jumping through the video camera right now. Devin, you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I believe you do. If the Bible's the Word of God, and Peter asked the question, what ought you to be? Then we ought to be able to read the Word of God and find that answer, right? What was the song years ago? Basic instructions before leaving earth. And I got everything right except leaving earth. Should have been basic instructions before inheriting the earth. But this Word tells us what we ought to be. How many of you know that God has commands in the Word? They're called mitzvahs, right? Some of you have thought that these only occurred under Moses, right? Moses gave us the first Ten Commandments. Isn't that right? No, that is not right. Moses received the first Ten Commandments of his time period. Lots and lots of commandments were given before that. Mitzvahs. You know what the very first words God ever spoke to a human being were? Wow, deafening silence. Genesis 2. Let's look at verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you are... What's that next word? Free. Free. Have you ever seen rules as bondage? Have you ever seen rules as nothing but what you cannot do? Thou shalt not have any fun. (laughs) Thou shalt not eat anything that you like to eat. Thou shalt not do anything that feels good, right? That's what religion is to the rest of the world. The Scripture asks you the question, what ought you to be? What are the first words God ever spoke to a man? Uh Uh-oh. Y'all ready? You are... (laughs) Boy, I feel like my mom is a teacher and my father's a principal. Does this surprise you? Free. We're going to leave this up here. Do words follow that? Yeah, I love them. To eat. (laughs) Yeah, I love to paraphrase the Bible. Yeah, we'll exert it however we want. I go to the buffet and say, Wow, God told the man, you are free to eat. Isn't that good news? Forget he's talking about trees. (laughs) God had Adam on the all-fruit diet. You are free to eat. That's not the point. The Bible asks, what ought you to be? The glaring answer, the first words that God ever spoke to a man like Keith was, you are free. If you have this idea that this relationship with God is somehow restrictive, what, am I the only one who had that idea? Yeah. Judah's like a cow staring at a new gate up here. <laughs> I had the idea to be a Christian meant a life devoid of fun. Forgive me, ladies, but it meant you were married to an ugly woman. That's, that's one of the first big problems that I had. If you were going to be somebody who was a success in God's eyes, it meant you were an effeminate preacher who talked in some weird love language that in an octave nobody could understand or be around. It meant that you had a cold, limp handshake. It meant that you talked like a politician. All of those things are what I thought Christianity was. And I saw it as only what I can't do. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. The first words God ever communicated to a human being is, you are free. You thought Martin Luther, the civil rights activist, not the reformer, was the first one to talk about man's freedom? You thought that our Constitution was the first one to talk about inalienable rights? The first words God ever spoke to a human being is you are free. I want you to think about what you're made of for a minute, right? What's the Bible say you're made of? Dust. That's Genesis 3.19. The next time God says you are, He says you are dust. What's happened? What's happened in Genesis 3 that God causes God to emphasize the fact that you are dust? We've sinned. Was God speaking to man? Let me say it a different way. Was man dust only? No. I mean, when you go look at dirt, you're not looking at a human being, right? So when God says you are dust, is that the whole story? It certainly is not. How were you made? A man like David was made because God took dust of the earth. Dust of the what? Earth. He breathed of Himself in it. He put His Ruach, His Spirit, into that dust. And the union between the divine and the earthly was called a man. I want you to get that. I don't want to have to write it up there. Man is a union between the divine God, some of His presence, some of His being, some of His image, inside of something from the earth. 
So why does God then say, you're dust and to dust you'll return? If this is true, what I'm telling you, this glorious union, this fantastic thing Adam created in the image and likeness of God to rule and subdue the planet, why does He look at him and say, you're dust and to dust you'll return? Because the man that had some of God's presence in him, the man that was the union between the earth and the heavens, was acting like the earth and not like the divine. So it's emphasized, you are dust. But this is not how it was intended to be. You were intended to be free, to be a mediator between the earth and the heavens, having some of both substances in you. This is how God created you. This is where you are happiest. This is how Lindsay was made to function. She thought she was a geologist. As somebody who studies the rocks in the earth. But there's something else pulling at her on the insides. She'll never be satisfied studying rocks alone. Something in her will want to explain the mysteries of the creation and the magnificence of the divine. God called her to be free to do anything except to sin. And when we sin, it's that earthly nature that is in us. Paul goes so far as to describe himself like a schizophrenic. He calls that the flesh. He says, when I sin, it's not even me who does it anymore. It's sin working in me. (laughs) That could just be convenient, couldn't it? (laughs) You could end up in some weird Gnostic teaching if you weren't careful. Good thing Paul had 39 books of the Old Testament to balance him in his thoughts. You ever want to know why the church is off in the craziness? It doesn't have the same balance that Paul has. You are free. First word spoken to man. Next time the phrase you are is you are dirt. (laughs) You're dust, right? Man has never used his freedom very well. But still, God's with him. God's teaching him. God's encouraging him, right? Next time words you are are spoken. You know when it is? Genesis 4.11 You are under... A curse. Because man, in his freedom, having two natures inside of him, the one breathed of God and the one taken from the earth, has used his freedom to indulge his dust, his earthly nature. And now, the first man, first man born of man and woman, Cain, killed this brother Abel and brought a curse upon himself. Turn with me to Genesis 6 starting in verse 5. Are you all awake for this? This is okay? What's the board say? You are free. Genesis 6, 5. I want you to understand something. There is no question whether or not God wants you free. There is no question whether or not God is a restrictive God. God is a God who is about freedom. In fact, if you were also a God, which is a scary thought, and you were going to critique God's performance on the earth, One area that you might be somewhat critical of is the amount of freedom that He has given us because we've not used it well. The most powerful thing in the universe is your free will. Because when you set your free will against what God has told you to do, not even God changes it or opposes it. He'll put little pricks, goads, goads in your path to try to change your direction. But He will not make you do anything. Free will is a powerful, powerful thing. You are free because God's called you to be free. But Peter asked the question that Shakespeare echoed later in the play Hamlet. 
What ought we to be though? In your freedom, what will you become? What will you be? You be a housewife? Be a lover of soap operas? Be a great athlete? Be a professional drinker? I got a few eyeballs raised on that one. What will you be with your freedom? We see that man has two natures in him and the very first thing that we notice is God made you a union of the divine and the earthly and then He calls you dust because that's what we choose to... to, (laughs) It's what we tend to choose. Because we persist in this over and over and over, the first man who was born of a man and woman falls under a curse because he indulges his earthly nature. Do you remember what God told Cain? Sin is crouching at your door, Cain! But you must master it. The same sin crouches at all of our doors. You get to decide. What will you be? Will you be earthly? Or will you be divine? You know, in Genesis 6, this is so sad, but I want to read it to you. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I want you to get that. Inclination of the thoughts. The Proverbs say God examines the motives behind your thoughts. He's not saying all of their actions were wicked. That would be bad enough. He's saying even what they think about all of the time is wicked. Come on, guys. You've spent time thinking about Jesus, been excited about His kingdom, then get into a fender bender and have a bad thought, right? No, no, never, never. You guys were all born sanctified. Total sanctification's working in you to where you're not even aging like me, right? Yeah, I knew that about you. That's why I love you so much. Church of beautiful people. You can be thinking about Jesus, but stray in your thoughts. That's not what's going on here. He's saying all they meditate on, all that's in their heart, all that's rolling around there, all of the time is wicked. This is a human race that had totally given itself over to the dust within them instead of the divine within them. And he said, oh, wow, I just I can't deal with this. We're going to have to wipe it out and start again. That's God erasing His board. Isn't that amazing? Boy, what a scary thing, huh? He starts over. How many does he start over with? Eight and all. Ham, Shem, Japheth, Noah, and their wives. Got a little problem right away there, don't we? Somebody shows a lack of respect to Dad who happens to be drunk. Interestingly enough, the emphasis is not on Noah's drunkenness. It's on the lack of respect his son showed. And what do we have? Another curse pronounced on somebody who yielded to their earthly nature. Isn't that amazing? What ought you to be? I want to introduce you to an idea. Some of you have heard me say it again, but not nearly enough. <laughs> Turn to Deuteronomy 5. Matt, what time did we start? But Oh, I'm sorry. Start the preaching. 11.10? Okay. Deuteronomy 5. Y'all in Deuteronomy 5? Deuteronomy 5, 22. What has just happened? God has spoken to an entire nation from a mountain. I'm going to revisit that issue, but I want to read you something. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from, from out of the fire. Who is the whole assembly? 
The whole assembly is a nation that God called. The cloud and the deep darkness, and He added nothing more. Then He wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. You said, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty. Why would that be amazing? I want you to think about that for a minute. Why is that an amazing thing? When man sinned in the beginning, when he yielded to the dust that was in his nature, when he showed himself not to be led by the divine, but to be led by the dust, what happened? He was shut out of the garden. Something was placed between him and the garden with a flaming sword. Kind of like that thing I drew you on the board before our worship service started. There was an angel there with a flaming sword keeping man out of the presence of God. The people are amazed because they stand at a mountain and they can peer in to the glory of God. They see that He's there. And they're amazed. But why? Why is God doing this? When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and elders came and said to me, and you said, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty, and we have heard His voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. Man who was made to be a union between the divine and the dust is now amazed that he can communicate with the divine. It's the very purpose we were made for. It's the very purpose that mankind exists. But they've strayed so far. But you have strayed so far that it seems an odd thing to speak with the divine. In fact, in our churches today, we're often taught that God doesn't do this anymore. How convenient. It alleviates you of the responsibility to be obedient to Him, doesn't it? We talk about the living Word of God, and yet we proclaim it dead when the canon was closed. No longer able to speak in a new and fresh way. Oh, nobody says that in their words. Their doctrines don't say that. But their actions do. You were made to mediate between this earth and the heavens. This nation is being called into that and they are shocked that they can do it without dying. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Wouldn't it be neat if they had answered their own question? We might could have gone into the millennial reign right there. We did! We just did! My God, it can be done! He's called us! We did it! but a people not ready yet, whose trust in God is not quite there yet, just like us. And they're going to live as an example to us for some 1,600 years before a Messiah shows up and teaches us how to mediate between man and God. And God's not through with that nation yet. If He started with them, He will finish with them. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. The Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. God is such a beautiful God. By the way, I haven't gotten to my point. I know I am deliberating here for a while, stalling. But God is such a good God. When He wants to make 
a wife for Adam. When God has that idea, He brings animals in front of Adam. Gives him a little object lesson until Adam begins to cry out for a helper. And then He gives him what he needs. God is such a good God that He takes a nation and says, man, I want you to mediate between the divine and the earth. And He brings them together, but He waits for them to cry out for what they really need which is one human being so filled with the divine that it overpowers the dust. And He does it good. He does it right. He does it without flaw. Then He can lead the whole nation as their king. And some scraggly dogs like you and me can be included in their number. It's what the Bible story is about. I am so happy to be a scraggly dog. I'm happy to be in the number of the righteous. But here's where we're going. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. What was the problem in Genesis 6? Why did God wipe the board clean? The thoughts of their hearts were always inclined towards evil all of the time. Now God is not calling just an individual. He's not just talking to Adam. He's not just talking to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He's speaking to an entire nation that He's been hundreds of years in the building. He said, it hadn't worked very well when I entrusted this to one guy. So I'm going to build from one guy a whole nation and I'm going to entrust this task to a whole nation. I'm going to change the inclinations of their heart. I'm going to teach them about my righteous character because I want it to go well with them. God is not a God of restriction. This law is not only there to beat them over the head and restrain them until Messiah comes, as some teach. This law is there because God wants us to be free. He wants our lives to go well. And so now He's called the nation and He wants them to mediate between the divine and the dust. And He wants their lives to go well, so He is going to teach them the right way to live. Next time somebody teaches you about the purpose of the law, file this one away in your memory somewhere. There's an important principle we need to get down so that you'll understand the rest of the message. Is that okay? Or you want me to let you sleep through the rest of the message? Y'all want to learn? Good. Turn with me to Corinthians. By the way, we're coming back to Exodus, so you can leave a finger there. That term, O, O-H, right? That's an English term, isn't it? Come on, y'all, talk to me. That's an English term, isn't it? How would you describe it? What is it? Yeah, it could have an explanation, an exclamation point by it, couldn't it? It's a term of exuberance, of excitement. Who said, oh, that their hearts would be inclined towards me? God. In Genesis 6, His heart is filled with pain. He's going to wipe out His whole creation because our hearts were inclined towards bad things. When He gives His righteous decrees to a whole nation, we're going to go back to their calling in just a minute. He goes, oh, that their hearts would be inclined towards Me, that it might go well. This means God gets excited at the thought of changing you from being led by the dust that is within you to the divine that is in you. Y'all, that's no small thing. That means He's looking to excite you. That means He's looking to compel you. He has something for you. 
He has something that He wants you to do. Come on, y'all. How can you just look at me without being excited about that? Keith's excited. Where are the rest of you? Help me out here. This is not an easy job. I'm standing at blank faces. God's called us to something. Can you not get excited about that? Come on. There'll be people sitting in stadiums watching a pig bladder float across gridiron. They'll talk about those stories for years. God bless them. My parents are watching by video right now. We sat around table after table at my extended family and talked about the great exploits of a football team in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Now, my parents never really thought that was important, but people get excited about it. 110,000 people will shout like idiots because they watch somebody catch a kickoff or make a touchdown pass. And we're talking about the divine being in you. You're being called to mediate between the earth and the skies. Y'all, that's no small thing. Donald Trump gets excited when he builds a big building. When he plates a toilet in gold, the man thinks that's something noteworthy. And you have the divine in you to mediate between that which is earthly and that which is divine. My God, that is unbelievable. In Corinthians 1.22, I could have just quoted this to you, but this would be worth you putting a star by in your Bible, okay? Jews! Jews! Demand miraculous... Uh Uh-oh. You know what? We're going to write this. I'm going to like this, I can tell. (laughs) Jews demand what? Signs. What do Greeks look for? Paul said, Jews demand miraculous signs while Greeks Look for wisdom. Are you a Jew? What are you? A Greek. You've spent your life looking for wisdom. We were trained in environments. Our worldview is based upon looking for wisdom. This was true in Paul's day. It's true today. When I talk to you about doctrine, you get excited. When we talk about what we believe. I mean, why do you go to church? You go to church to learn what you believe, right? Yeah, in the West, that's what we do. Jews don't do that. We are studying creed all of the time. What do you believe? What do I need to know? What do I need to recite? In fact, maybe in the 3rd or 4th century, we could just give Craig the Apostles' Creed. Then he'll be good to go, right? We can get some idiot in a white collar and black robe to pronounce some voodoo over you before you die. And if he says the right thing, then you'll only suffer in purgatory for a little while while he extorts your family, and then you'll get let out. We always focus on creed. That's what we do. Jews don't do that. They focus on deed. What we're going to find out here is that we have spent our whole life... Yeah, if I don't spell something right, that's what grace is. We have spent our whole lives... Learning our creed. We're looking for wisdom. What do I believe? How does this happen? Teach me and it needs to make logical sense. This upon this upon this upon this. But the nation that God called to mediate between the earth and the divine set us an example. An example we're supposed to follow. The Gospel is written in the fabric of Judaica. Jesus, a Jewish theologian giving Jewish parables, 
said that we bring glory to His Father by showing ourselves to be His disciples. Not by speaking a message. Not by teaching creed. But by doing something that shows us to be His disciples. Our churches have placed creed over deed. The problem with creed is it allows you just to indulge the dust within you to never have to live anything. Always learning. Always sitting around talking about great things. Never doing what God called us to do. Both are important, saints. But I want you to get something. Doctrine's just a framework to help you better understand what you should be doing. That's worth saying again. Doctrine is just the framework to help you better understand what you should be doing. So we can spend all day arguing about some kind of verb usage. What tense the Greek word is in. All of those things are just so that you will better understand what you should be doing. And there's a reason for that. Turn with me to Exodus 4. On this Jewish mindset, deed over creed. What kind of lives ought we to live? What ought we to be, Peter asked. In Exodus 4, starting in verse 14, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moshe. And he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. God has told Moses, I want you to do something. And Moses becomes fixated. He says, But I don't speak well. This wasn't very important to God. God's already said, I made man's mouth. I made his ears. What are you whining to me for, Moshe? But Moshe persists in his whining. And this is God's chosen instrument to do something. What was Moses called to do? He's called to deliver Israel out of Egypt. That's what he was called to do. Right? Is it really important what he says? Well, it's not of no consequence. But what he was called was to do something, not simply to say something. And he's hung up on the details, just like you and me. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moshe and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. That's kind of a compliment. And yet God didn't call him, did He? Only after Moses persisted in unbelief. I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. And his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and teach and will teach you what to do. He's going to help them speak, but He's going to instruct them, teach them, impress upon them, train them in what they should do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if He were your mouth and as if you were God to Him. Moses, he's going to be a mouth, a prophet. You're going to be God. What was man called to do? Mediate between the divine and the earthly. What is Moses there doing? As if he were God's ambassador, mediating between the divine and man for the sake of a called people. 
Listen to what God emphasizes to Moses here. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. God wasn't interested in the wisdom and the articulation. God was not interested in Moses getting his diction right and the inflection in the proper places. God was not interested in how Moses said things. He was interested in Moses doing what he told him to do. Turn with me to Exodus 19. This Moses accomplishes his task. Let me ask you something. When we talk about the Exodus, do you begin by quoting something like Shakespeare to me? Do you begin telling me about the Exodus by all of the great things that Moses said? When you describe the Exodus, what do you do? You talk about the great actions. The Red Sea was split and Israel came before it. The Nile was turned to blood. It rained hailstones. You never sit there and talk about what Moses said. In fact, when you look at it, Moses has got very few speaking roles. He just says, you know, Pharaoh, uh, about this time tomorrow, bad stuff's going to happen. You in or you out? In, out. In, uh, out. See you, see you at plague number 9. Then plague number 10. This is not with long oration that God delivered Israel. It's not with eloquence of speech. Paul picks up on that theme in Corinthians right around the place that I just quoted you from. Quoted them from to you. It's not about eloquence. It's about a demonstration of God's divinity working in your life. You are more than dust. God has breathed Himself into you. Quit acting like the dirt from which we were made. Once God put His hands on you, once His Spirit came into you, you became something more. You became a mediator between the divine and the earthly. What kind of people ought we to be? Exodus 19, starting in verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. I don't want to make too much of it, but the house, that's what they were born to. The people... Israel, that's what they were called to be. They were born to dust and called to divine. They were born to deception. They were born to trickery. And they were called to divine. Jacob means deceiver, trickster, supplanter. Israel means prince with God. Somebody who mediates between the earthly and the divine. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Why didn't he say you yourselves have seen all of the things that I said to Egypt? You have seen... For yourself, the nasty emails that I sent Pharaoh. I gave him a piece of my mind. How ridiculous! Who would serve a God like that? Who would serve a God whose people act like that? You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Man outside of a garden, separated by a flaming sword and an angel, but now an entire nation is being drawn as if a yoke was around their neck, pulling them to God. 
Our view of God has been that He has a stick that He wants to punish you. Take away everything that's fun. He wants to restrict you when the truth is He said you are free. And in your freedom, I want you to choose the divine and not the dust. In your freedom, I want you to seek Me. So He's taken a nation and He's put a lasso around their neck. He has pulled them out of something that is horrible, stretching them towards Him for a reason. Darnell, where'd you get saved? What state? Louisiana. Where'd you get saved, Lindsay? Texas. That sounds good, doesn't it? Texas. Nick, where'd you get saved? Illinois. God drew you from the pit that you were in in whatever place you were in because He wanted something. You knew that you were dust. You were born and you began dying the day you were born. You know that. We know it. We look all around us. It breaks our heart to see this little girl. But something in her that is part of the divine is going to be in the presence of God. She will escape the dust. You were drawn to be with God for a reason. I want you to get this reason. If you don't get anything else today, even if my beautiful artistry has not touched you today, get this. Verse 5, Now if you obey Me fully and keep My covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is Mine, you, you, Jennifer, will be for Me a kingdom of priests. You will be a kingdom of priests. He doesn't say you will learn the message of a priest. He doesn't say you will find the wisdom, the creed of priests. He says you will be for Me a kingdom of priests. I own everything on the earth, but I drew you to Me because I wanted you to say something. No, not at all. That's totally secondary. He drew you because He wanted you to be something. The question that Hamlet says, to be or not to be, and then he begins to debate which track in his life would be best. Peter asked, in light of the fact that this whole bowl of dirt is going to be renovated by fire and everything's going to perish, what ought you to be? The calling for the nation is something that we've been grafted into. I'll teach you about that a thousand times over. But what you need to know is it starts with a nation that we're called to be something. Why was the law given according to Deuteronomy 5? God wanted to change their hearts so that they weren't drawn towards the dust. They were drawn towards the divine. You say, well, Israel failed. You are wrong, saints. How about King David? Was he a failure? How about Hosea? Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Were they failures? Were they bound up in legalism? Were they so restricted that they saw God as a God who was somebody waiting over them to punish them? No. David wrote Psalms that said, Your law revives my soul because he found in him this. You are called to be free. Any law that was ever given to him was given for the purpose of him being free to be inclined towards the divine. What are the restrictions in the law for? Those who don't keep the law. Punishments were there for those that were inclined towards the wrong things. But they were originally intended so that you would be inclined towards life. God drew this nation to Himself so that they would be a kingdom of priests. John 15, verses 5-8 through 8, paraphrased in the King Eric. 
My Father gets glory when you show yourselves to be My disciples. Showing yourselves to be a priest is what God is after. Not telling people what you believe. Not arguing with people in the intellectual realm. This is how the Gospel can say, Wives, relax! You can win over your husbands without words. It's amazing the things my wife can get me to do without words. In fact, words can be the biggest hindrance. I'm a stubborn mule of a man. And if she looks at me and says, we're going to do this, those words suddenly become an obstacle in me. I'm unable to perform that. No matter how strongly persuaded or encouraged. But with a gentle smile, a slight glancing of the eyes, blushing of the cheeks, I do anything she wants me to do. God's not interested in what you know. I'm proud of you that you're great theologians, every one of you. I'm proud of you that you've mastered the art of public speaking. I'm proud of you that our Greek-dominated churches have taught you all of the right doctrine and dogma. But it's about as useful as what Jag and Daisy leave in the yard if you do not do what God called you to do. James, the most Hebrew of all Hebrew books in the New Testament. You know why I say that? He had a very firm grasp on deed over creed. So much so that the American churches don't know what to do with him. We've changed the word synagogue in his letter to church because <laughs> we simply didn't like it. That's kind of a racist ordeal, but we'll teach on that another time. He says, don't you be a hearer of the Word only deceiving yourself. Instead, do what it says. You were called to be something, not to believe something. Since where the American church and probably the church worldwide has gone wrong is believing that our purpose in life is to believe something. It is not. It is to become something. A nation of priests. Deuteronomy 26, although you might not have known where this Scripture was, turn there, is something that all Christians cling to. You could care less at times about Israel. could care less about their promises. All you know is that today we believe in Jesus and we die and we go to heaven and we might fly away and live on clouds and eat cotton candy and be propped up by jukeboxes where we fish when we die. The great American fallacy. The great American lie. But here's one that was spoken to a nation called to be priest that you ought to be glad to be grafted into. This is Deuteronomy 26, 16. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all of your heart. All of these external regulations were about changing a man's heart. And with all your soul, you have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways, that you will keep His decrees, His commands, and His laws, that you will obey Him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are His people, His treasured possession as He has promised, and that you are to keep all of His commands. He has declared that He will set you in praise, fame, 
and honor high above all of the nations He has made, that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as He has promised. God is keeping His promise. He's calling us to be something. A kingdom, a nation of holy priests. Royal, holy priests. And why? Because He wants it to go well with us. He wants to set us high above all of the other peoples on the earth. He wants to favor us, honor us, and show us His loving kindness as an object lesson for the heavens. Ephesians teaches us that there was a mystery in the Gospel. Now, if Paul called something a mystery, would you all say Paul's a pretty bright guy? Devin, would you say Paul was a pretty bright guy? He might have a leg up on me, right? And he says something was a mystery. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians 3. Saints, you ever looked around and gone, why are there so few people in this church? You ever thought about that? No, never. Of course not. We're so spiritual, we're never concerned with such things, right? How hard do you think the devil works to keep people from hearing these kind of messages? It would be a whole lot better just to be entertained. We could get pom-poms up here and cheerleaders and lights and smoke. Tell you that you are a champion and that God wants you rich. Eat donuts and play basketball after the service and we could have as big a church as we wanted and we would stink just as bad to God as anybody sitting in a bar on a Sunday morning except that the guy in the bar might not know better. Saints, we're called to be something. It's not enough to believe. Ephesians teaches us something. Because I keep saying we, 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 we. Who is the we? The we is us along with Israel. This has been missing from American preaching. Our theologians who have emphasized wisdom and creed over signs and deed have missed something. We don't get any of these things that were spoken to the specific nation of Israel unless Israel gets them. Why pray for Jerusalem? Why pray for Israel? Why be concerned? Your salvation depends upon their salvation. Read Romans 11 and tell me I'm wrong. Come back, great theologians, debate with me. Or you can do like some. You can write me a long, nasty letter that rambles all over the place and you can't follow it. I am interested in truth. With all of my heart, that's all I want. But I won't be dissuaded by anybody. This is an important message and it's not getting out there enough. You hear the gospel of the kingdom in very few places. You hear the gospel of the American masses everywhere. How many chords do you have to get wrong in a song before the song's not recognizable anymore? How far do the lyrics have to get off before you don't recognize the original artist? What do you think happens to Christianity when it divorces itself from its very origins? When you picture Jesus in a three-piece suit? Hmm? I don't know. It's just a question. Y'all dwell on it for a while. Here's the mystery. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery is that through the Gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It was a mystery for 1,600 years that this one nation, Israel, who is called to be a kingdom, 
called to be holy, called to mediate between the earthly and the divine, would also include some adoptees. It was a mystery that we would even get a chance to participate in this. Do we owe a sense of indebtedness to them then? For laboring? Of course we do. The king that you serve, what was written above his head the day that he was crucified before all of the world? King of the Jews. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. First chapter. I'm going to read you three verses out of the book of Revelation. We've been kicking around all kinds of ideas. Preterism. Partial preterism. Pre, mid, post raptures. No raptures. When seals have happened, will they happen? Are they happening in the future? All of that wisdom. I don't want you to miss something. There's something we're supposed to be. Something we're supposed to do. Some function that we have. Revelation 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Those are seven churches in John's day. Seven churches, just like if I wrote a letter to the two churches on the corner, the two churches down the street, and a few more churches somewhere else. There, this is a letter. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Yeshua HaMashiach, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us. God's original command to mankind has just been furthered, explained, and elaborated on by Jesus. You are free. He has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What were you made to be? A kingdom. That's a church. It's everybody who recognizes the dominion of the King. But who was the promise given to? Israel. And you've been grafted into it. You are called to be something not believe something. The belief is simply how. What you are as a citizen of the United States. What you do as a citizen of the United States. Some of us follow speed limits. You obey its laws. Those are principles within the kingdom, but it's not what you are. You're not an American because you drive 65 miles an hour. You're not an American because you're patriotic. You're an American because you're a citizen of this dominion. And you do those other things because you're an American. You are not a Christian because you believe things. You believe things because you are a Christian. When we're trying to determine what activities qualify as ministry activities, when we meet a couple on a beach at Padre Island, and we realize that there is absolutely no hope of ever having these people participate in our church. Not contribute financially, not contribute with their lives, not sit under our teaching, not learn, not grow, not reproduce themselves. Why do we still love them and act like pastors to them? Because that's what we are. Building the church is just what we do as pastors. 
you understand the difference between creed and deed? Deed is what you do. The creeds are just things that motivate them, help explain them, bring clarity to your deeds, show you what you should be doing. If you have a life that is full of creed, if you are long on creed and short on deed, you are missing the kingdom of God no matter how much you know. God would save computers otherwise. He'd have called tape recorders. We would have heavenly loudspeakers simply replaying a message. He doesn't want you to speak a message. He wants you to be a message. Revelation 5. Verse 6. You remember the setting in heaven? Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Where are your prayers held? Golden bowls of incense. You think about that next time you drop to your knees in tears and cry to God. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them, you formed them, fashioned them, constructed them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 20 talks about those who partake in the first resurrection who have been made to be a kingdom of priests. It was promised 1,600 years before Jesus lived. And the book of Revelation tells us whether you believe this is happening now, will happen in the future, or happened in the past, that the end result is this is what we become. So if you do not become a priest, what does that tell you? You don't belong to Christ. It's not about what you believe. Those who rule and reign with Him are those who were made into something that mediates between the earthly and the divine. Those that have laid their hand upon God's shoulder and man's shoulder are in attempting to make peace everywhere they go, wanting shalom upon the earth. Jesus opened a scroll in His hometown. Do you remember where He read? Isaiah what? Young dude with Jesus, you say, is it, is it not written? The burden's always on the back of the hearers. It's Isaiah 61. Turn there. I want you to hear this. This is the gospel message. You are to become a kingdom of priests. The mystery was that you got to participate in this. Israel thought it was just for them. No different than every denomination we've ever had, right? The kingdom is ours. Everybody else will be outside. That's the joke. Shh. Don't tell them the others are here. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What's the good news to the poor? Well, if you're watching TBN or whatever other ridiculous show is on, it's that they're to be rich. 
that they're to have a Mercedes Benz and lots of bling, right? Don't you want that dope dealer's vehicle? (laughs) No, I don't at all. What is the good news? That even those who are lowly and poor are called to be a kingdom of priests. It's the message of the kingdom. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim restriction. He sent me to proclaim freedom. God has been proclaiming freedom every time He's ever spoken to man. All He's ever wanted is in your freedom for you to cling to Him. For you not to use your freedom to sin. The law holds no penalty for Israel or for you. No penalty. Galatians clear about that. In your freedom from anything that could possibly be viewed as restrictive, what have you done with your freedom? Does it cause you to be more free and more like God? Or less like God? Do you yield to the divine or to the dust? You're called to be something, saints. And release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Now, you've been grafted into this, and it was a mystery. What will you be? An oak of righteousness. Why? To display the splendor of your God. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Friends, that's happening in our lifetime. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Verse 6 is one worth circling. And you will be called priests of Yahweh. And you will be named ministers of God. Why would you be called that if you weren't that? Why would you be named that if you weren't that? Our destiny, what God is forming us into, what He is fashioning us into, is the nation that He sought after. Man's hearts were inclined towards everything that was wicked. So a series of righteous revelations about God's character and who God is, He formed a nation. And out of that nation, He raised up a great and mighty King who was His perfect representation, all aimed at one purpose, teaching us to become a kingdom of priests acting in holiness, mediating between God and mankind because He desires to save everybody. For us, salvation is a very personal matter. I was saved on this day. I was baptized on this day. You know? Put a bow in my hair and... Anyway. For God, it is a very global thing. He saved you so that you would be about mediating for others. The Jews understood this to the extent that it was for other Jews. What was a surprise to them is that you got included. Will you fall victim to the same trap? It's only for us. It's not for everybody else. Will you spread the world with creed? Or will you be what God called you to be, a kingdom of priests, so that people will learn about the divine and not give way to the dust? Deuteronomy 33, 2 speaks of God's holy ones. 
who receive His instruction and how glorious they are. Have you received God's instruction? It's supposed to make you a holy one. But those words were spoken to a nation that is not you. You've just been grafted into their holiness. How can I say that? How can you say the nation of Israel is holy? Because Jesus is their King. His righteousness will extend to all of the borders of Israel even as it has all the dark crevices of your life. Two Scriptures. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. And they're both New Testament. You ought to be glad. You'll have these memorized. Right? So when I say 2 Corinthians 3, you go, Oh, that's right, Pastor. I know where you're going. Second Corinthians 3. Watch this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? That's facetiousness. Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? For you to listen to me, do I need to have my PhD certificate on the wall? Look, I don't even know what to call it. It's not a certificate. Diploma. Do I need to have it on the wall? Do I need a letter from university telling you these words are true? How many people have had the letters and their words are not true? How often have you looked for wisdom instead of deed? You know what? I'm going to stand on what Paul said. And I want you to think about what he said to his church. You yourselves are our letter. What would a letter be if you were writing in Greek? Epistle. That means you are living epistles. What's the message you're supposed to speak? <laughs> well, Jesus said uh, a city on a hilltop can't be hidden, right? Y'all remember that? Or am I making that up? Nick, am I making that up? No, He said that. A city on a hilltop can't be hidden. So let your light shine before men. We think we're called to be loud speakers. We think we're called to go proclaim a message everywhere. And you are, but it's not with your mouth. Aaron was secondary to Moses. He was a consolation bracket type person. Alright, Moses, since you don't have the backbone to do this, I've sent your brother here. He'll speak for you. But you go be God in this situation. Not, not you, uh, you aspire to talk like God. Not you know what God... You go be God in this situation. Next time you see somebody hungry... Next time you see somebody starving spiritually or physically, what are you called to do? Be God in that situation. Mediate between the divine and the dust. You're called to bridge that gap because God wants a whole nation of us doing that. Next time you turn on the news and go, my God, where is God in all of this? The murder rate's going up. One in five people are poor, whatever it is. Whatever it is that breaks your heart. Have you ever wondered why it breaks your heart? Because you are a union between the divine and the dust and God's called, called you to lay your hands upon both and do something about it. Say, so, well, I can't. The problem's too big. You have a big God. Start one at a time. Quit waiting for us to organize services for you to do what you're already called to be. Be what you're called to be. We'll see it and support it. I'm never going to assign all of you titles. It's not going to happen. For most of you, it wouldn't be a good idea. I'm never going to structure programs for all of you. I'm not going to do it. What we're going to do is see what you're called to be 
and then support you in it. That's my job. My job's not to provide it for you. It's to discover it in you, to help nourish it, to watch it grow, to support it, to back away when it's time to bloom. That's my job. That's why I taught you about transitional leadership. You're called to be something, not just sit in here warm these seats. As much as I like that you're here, if you won't be what God's called you to be, you need to get out. Somebody else will fill your seat. God will make sure because this is an important message. I love you. I'm excited. I believe that you will do this. So let's turn to 1 Peter 2 and we close here. If I preach too long, it's Matthew's fault. He told me we started at 11.10 and it's now 12.10. As much as I'm saying that jokingly, I absolutely don't mean it apologetically. If you can find one point today that you don't think that you needed, then you might be in the wrong church. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to Him, that's Yeshua, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in Him, that's the same word as faith, will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. He goes on to teach about that. You are being made into a kingdom of priests so that you can mediate between the earthly and the divine. We're closing with this, but i got this board up here and I have to write one more thing. The cornerstone, you have to pretend this is perfectly square. The cornerstone here is Jesus. Put the big J there for you, right? Now we'll go ahead and write it out so y'all don't think we're talking about somebody else. Everything that is built in God's economy is built on a scale square to Jesus. What it means when it says they've tripped over, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone and it's become a capstone is the same thing that everything's measured by is going to finish the building as well. And if they didn't like it in the beginning... They certainly aren't going to like it when it becomes the crown center jewel piece at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. That's what he's talking about. This is a living stone. It's something that was a message, not just preached a message. You, like this, are being assembled into a building that houses God. What that means is that as Devin becomes what he is called to be, and Nick and Adam and Craig and Steve and David all become what they're called to be, and somebody looks at it, they will see God. Because all of you are dust that is being transformed into the divine. And when they look and see what you have become, 
they will see God. That's the church's mission. If that's not deep enough for you, I am sorry. If it's not profound enough for you, I am sorry. But if you don't become what God's called you to be, you will be sorry. Stand up. Let's pray. What are the first words God speaks to a man? You are free. Jews seek signs. Greeks look for wisdom. What are you going to do? You're going to put your deeds over your creed because that's what God wants, isn't it, Judah? We're going to measure lives by Jesus, the cornerstone. Holy, holy God. Lord, You have called us so much more than to rote memorization. Lord, You have called us to so much more than church attendance. Holy God, we have failed these people in so many ways as priests by lifting up ridiculous nursery rhymes about You for them to believe in instead of lifting up You as the cornerstone for them to measure their lives by to become something. Holy, holy God, I pray that You would move upon their hearts, that You would give them peaceful sleep when they need it and restless sleep when You're trying to get their attention. Holy God, that they would be formed and fashioned into what You've called them to be. Lord, teach us to nurture their callings. Lord, to fan into flame what You've put in them, that they would bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Holy God, with all of our hearts, what we want in this ministry that You founded is to raise up people that will surpass us. Jesus, stir their hearts to do it. Stir their hearts with their vision and their callings of what they are to become. A kingdom of priests. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.